Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the week in politics with SNP MP John Nicholson. John is the MP for Ockhill and South Perthshire, and as befits a former BBC and ITV news presenter, he sits on the Commons Culture, Media and Sport Committee. We'll be getting his views on the Tory leadership election, Indy Ref 2 and more. And I know that a fair few of you have sent in questions via Twitter a little earlier. If one or two of you want to join in as well and request a microphone access to chat with John and ask questions, please do. The style of the week in politics is not to be aggressive or confrontational. It is to reflect a little bit on the last seven days in politics, but also to ask hard questions, but perhaps in a a more polite way than is sometimes usual. Before we crack on, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper. It's edited by Hardeep Matharu, and I know that the latest edition has just gone to the printers. It is not too late, though, to order your copy. Please take out a subscription, and you'll not only get a brilliant newspaper, you're also supporting our work here on Byline Radio and on the Byline Times podcast. You get details of how to subscribe over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, well, thank you very much. And just a reminder, too, that Byline TV goes live every Friday night at 7 via YouTube. So do make a date. John Nicholson, welcome to Byline Radio and the Week in Politics. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm fine. I'm uh, down in London in this uh, sweltering Alabama heat and uh, you always uh, you always know which MPs are are the Scottish ones because they're the red face ones wandering around the House of Commons going oh it's fair bilin and then the traditional answer is and I hear it's going to be even hotter Amara so um, we are not we're not we're not built uh, for this age well, but Don, uh, just to let you know I am in Glasgow at the mo- at the moment and I know and the sun is shining so that's an achievement well, in itself isn't it the sun always shines in Glasgow, metaphorically, as you know. But uh, I have to tell the truth, it can sometimes be a, a wee bit rainy in Glasgow, but uh, I hear the weather is quite nice at the moment. Although I have to say, you know, I noticed there was a there was a piece in the FT today that was saying uh, that folk here uh, love it when there's a heat wave, uh, but they're soon not going to love heat waves. Uh, my partner's from uh, Brazil. Uh, escape from the Brazilian heat. He doesn't enjoy the heat particularly. I, I don't mind a wee bit of sunshine, but uh, I find these these heat waves really disturbing. And when you see that the temperature is going to be up to 40 degrees next week, uh, that is a terrifying heat. It will break all records. And I think it's something all of us uh, should be a wee, wee bit worried about. By the way, can I just say, Adrian, that you've got my name spelling wrong in the week in politics with John Nicholson. You've spelled it John Nicholson with an H. So if anyone's trying to find me on Twitter, oh. there is no there is no H in Nicholson. It's the spelling from the Orkney Islands, which is where my family come from. John, I will make sure that is corrected later on when the podcast goes up. I'm not sure I can correct it now as we are live, but I will make sure that is corrected on the podcast edition of this programme. So thank you. In fact, I'm very happy to talk about climate change, John, which I think you've alluded to, uh, or at least the heat wave anyway. And 
it, it, it intrigues me on these. I mean, clearly the Scottish National Party, of which you are a, an MP, has nationalism at, at its core. That, that's a, a very clear proposition. Very. Easy. I don't agree with that. Sorry, oh. can I just say I don't? Yeah. I, I don't agree with that. There is not nationalism at its core because I know how that sounds to people who live out with Scotland because that can sometimes have quite unpleasant connotations. Um, it's not about nationalism. It's not about thinking that we are better than anybody else. It's as far removed from the ideology behind Brexit as it's possible to be, to manage or to think. Um, it's a very simple proposition. We simply believe that uh, government closer to the people is a good thing. And we think we've got the right to self-determination and to choose whether we want to be a medium-sized European country in the European Union like Denmark, taking our own decisions and getting the governments that we vote for, or whether we should always be outvoted and end up being part of Boris Johnson's Brexit Britain. So it's not about being, <laughs> well, best, it's not John, about being better than anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, and uh, and we'll I'll come to those issues. And and my point was not to paint nationalism in a in a derogatory way, which which I understand that some people, particularly south of the border, may view it as. But uh, and I've always understood the SNP's nationalism to be a nationalism of place and not of race. If you are north of the border, you are entitled to call yourself Scottish, and it's about the government of Scotland from within exactly. Scotland. I'm very, very happy to, to clarify. Exactly. And it doesn't matter where you were born. That's the other really important thing. It's a civic nationalism, which means because we're strongly pro-immigration and we're strongly pro-free movement. So if you want to come to Scotland and live in Scotland and regard yourself as Scottish, you are Scottish. Those are the only qualifications. There are no others. Sure. But having established the ground rules, as it were, of your nationalism, uh, and obviously a more benign one, you would argue, than the nationalism that drove Brexit, for example, nevertheless, that is the proposition. Uh, does the SNP have a particular view? Does it need to have a particular view on issues such as climate change? Or can you just happily stand neutrally above and say, well, as long as we achieve government for Scotland from Scotland, the rest will follow? No, I think we've got a very important role to play on climate change. And I think the party has been good on climate change. No party is beyond criticism, obviously. But we, we were one of the largest oil producers in the world throughout much of the 70s and 80s and 90s. It was a huge bonanza that was frittered away by Westminster. And it you know, would make you cry when you see the conditions that some in Scotland uh, live in and think just how much wealth came offshore. I think I'm right in saying Scotland's one of only two countries in the world that found oil and didn't create a sovereign oil wealth fund. Norway, by contrast, country very similar to Scotland, but a country that never had an industrial revolution, so really very far behind us in terms of de uh, development, is now the wealthiest country per capita in the world with a massive uh, oil fund um, and uh, you know huge social spending as a result. But, you know, that bonanza has gone. We're not in favour of opening up new oil wells because we know the climate damage that it causes. But we have a quarter of all of Europe's offshore renewables. It is a massive second chance, not just for Scotland and Scotland's prosperity, but to, good, to do good in the world because we export 
10 times the energy that we need in Scotland for our own consumption. And so as we look to a future beyond oil with renewables, sea and wind power, Scotland has a very important part to play. And Scotland should be controlling the development of that because the Westminster government is very half-hearted about that. And I think all parties at Holyrood are enthusiastic about renewables, in particular, of course, the Greens and the SNP who are in a coalition government. Yeah, and that has been controversial in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon said last year that the proposed Cambo oil field off Shetland should not get the go-ahead. And your critics will say, well, look, this is an example of putting a principle ahead of economic development and job creation. I think it's very important to to remember that people's livelihoods um, are in, in play here. So while all of us are passionate about the environment, you've got to remember that areas of the country uh, rely heavily on oil. And people who work in the oil industry, obviously, that is their livelihood. And I remember just how cruel Thatcher was towards the folk who lived in the coal industry. Now, nobody would argue that we should be opening coal mines now. Well, some Conservatives do, but most of us don't. But the way the people were thrown out of their jobs and whole communities were devastated, and we now have areas of the country which are seeing second and third generation long-term unemployment, which were once prosperous, proud coal mining areas, we've got to learn the lessons from that. So when we talk about um, moving beyond oil, We've got to be very careful about how we transition, what help we give to transitioning and what we do for the people who rely so heavily on the oil economy. You talk about Scotland producing, I think, 10 times more energy in renewables than it needs to sustain itself. So obviously the other nine tenths could be sold off elsewhere as profit and helping to develop the Scottish economy. How do you propose to ensure that? 90%, 10% split. Would the renewables industry in an ideal SNP world be nationalised? Well, I'm I'm, I'm on the political left. I'm in favour of public ownership. And the problem is at the moment that we don't control those levers of the economy. Those are controlled by, by Westminster. For folk who are perhaps not very sure what the division is between Holyrood and the government there and Westminster, we control a lot of our domestic uh, legislation, but a huge amount of our um, legislation comes from uh, from Westminster. It's, they're called reserved powers. Uh, and so we can quite often want to do something and find we don't have the powers to do it. But there's obviously a huge opportunity for us at the moment, given what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. I always thought that it was uh, uh, impossible to understand why Angela Merkel and and, uh, her Christian Democrats in Germany were, not least since she understood so much about Russia, she was a Russian speaker, she grew up in East Germany, she knows Putin well. I couldn't understand why they were putting the German economy so heavily in thrall to uh, the Russian regime and Vladimir Putin in particular with that oil pipeline. And I I think she, the Christian Democrats and German society in general, political society, has acknowledged that it was a big mistake. But as, as much of mainland Europe, Germany in particular, and lots of central 
Europe now looks around for alternative sources of energy. It puts Scotland in pole position to provide that energy. And that should be a top priority for us and would be for a Scottish government to provide that renewable energy to mainland Europe when it's looking for alternative sources of power. Strategically, from the UK's point of view, that advantage that you identify Scotland possessing is something that Westminster would be very loath to give up, isn't it? I don't know if you think that's ever crossed the mind of a UK Prime Minister, you know, whether you think that underneath the opposition to devolution, to independence rather, there is this sense, this awareness that Scotland has this great reservoir of renewable energy, or whether you just think it's just a stubborn reflex attitude that Westminster doesn't want to give up power? Well, I think it's a whole combination of things. Uh, Nobody wants to be George III and see the American colonies go. Nobody wants to be the Prime Minister who sees uh, Scotland disappear. It would have all sorts of implications. I imagine it would make England and Wales uh, much less influential on the world stage. Um, that might be a good thing, I think. It would probably lead to the loss of the permanent seat in the Security Council, because I don't imagine countries like Brazil and India would be all that happy with England and Wales retaining the seat. But of course, for decades and decades, Scotland has fueled the economy uh, south of the border. Thatcher wouldn't have been able to carry out some of her economic experiments if it hadn't been for the oil wealth. And you'll know back in the 1970s, it, it, was the, uh, it was the Heath government that commissioned a report on what effect independence would have in Scotland after we discovered oil. And in public, Heath and Callaghan and others were saying at the time that were Scotland to become independent, Scotland would be uh, politically isolated and economically devastated. But that wasn't what they actually thought, because they commissioned a report from the chief economist of the Treasury, a man called Macron. The Macron report had top secret stamped on it by the Callaghan government and was only revealed under freedom of information request relatively recently. And what that showed was that had Scotland become independent then, it would have become the wealthiest country in Europe with an economy on a par with Switzerland. And the biggest problem that Scotland would then have faced would have been the strength of the Scottish pound, which would have had an adverse effect on the manufacturing industry, particular car exports. So it has been a long-term tactic of uh, Westminster governments, whether Labour or Conservative, to try to pretend that Scots would be very vulnerable if they're independent, while, of course, knowing exactly as you posit that Scotland would become a wealthy country with independence. And we all know it, and it's a question how we, how we spend that wealth wisely for the benefit of all the all the population and indeed export wisely because I'm very keen to see a huge increase in um, in the aid that we give because we should be doing more for those less fortunate. Linking that theme, John, the theme of climate change and renewables that we've been discussing and the week in politics, which is what we're here to talk about, you'll be aware, I'm sure, that one of the contenders to become leader of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister Penny Mordaunt has accepted thousands of pounds in donations from a donor linked to a climate denial group. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that she herself is a climate denier, but I suppose it does pose difficult questions for her as the race goes ahead. Climate change is not 
an issue, this has staggered me really, although perhaps I really shouldn't be surprised, that has not, so far as I'm aware, cropped up so far in any of the conversations or debates around the Conservative leadership election. Uh, you're, up, you're absolutely right. I, um, I'm afraid I gave myself the sad task of watching the Conservative home leadership debate just now, and it was a grim affair. I mean, what an appalling a group of candidates. And the... <laughs> The, um, the Although I suppose as a political opponent, I should be quite pleased uh, in a cynical way where I'm minded to, to cynicism because none of them are going to be tough as as opponents. But you're right, they, not a single one mentioned the climate. Uh, there was more time spent discussing toilets than, they, than, than, than the climate. What does that say about the Conservative Party? That this obsession that some of them have with toilets and people's genitalia is more important than the fact that next week we're going to have 40 degrees heat in the south of England, breaking all previous records. It's like a parallel conservative universe. Have you lost, though, your greatest asset in the departure of Boris Johnson? No, we've got less trust to look forward to. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Who knows? You might have Benny Mordant or Rishi Sunak. But a serious question underlies that. I, I remember, John, I remember going to watch Celtic play against Dundee United in the 1989 Scottish League Cup final at Hampden. Long story, don't ask. But at that game, who should be in attendance but the UK Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. And the Celtic fans, and it has to be said, many of the Dundee United fans waved red cards at Margaret Thatcher. They were giving Thatcherism the red card. Margaret Thatcher was a fantastic wellspring of inspiration, I would imagine, for the cause of Scottish nationalism. And I would have thought that Boris Johnson would have been likewise. There was a particularly English quality, I think, an English public school quality about Johnson, his disdain for Northern Ireland, you know, which he'd said there'd be no border over the Irish Sea, across the Irish Sea, except over his dead body. And then he, he in fact, creates a border in the Irish Sea through the Northern Ireland Protocol, suggesting that he cares little for the constituent parts of the United Kingdom. Surely he was a massive aid to the SNP cause. Well, I think we were, we were lucky with him as an opponent, uh, that's certainly true. At uh, the last election, I beat a, a Conservative. And what we did at various hustings that we had across the constituency as he sat and bit his knuckles with, uh, with a mixture of terror and misery, my <laughs> Conservative opponent, was we just read out lines from Boris Johnson's oeuvre, you know, gay men as bum boys and tank tops, uh, black people as pickaninnies with watermelon smiles. The Scots as a, quote, venomous race who deserve to be exterminated. Can you imagine saying that about any other group? Can you imagine saying that about Muslims? They deserve to be exterminated or any other group. And yet he published a poem about that in The Spectator when he edited The Spectator. Uh, he's a thoroughly poisonous individual. I followed his career. I think we're exact contemporaries. And I followed his career for a long, long time. And I knew I'd won my, my seat when, a, when an elderly lady came up to me and she said in, in one of our 
kind of posher areas. And she said, Mr. Nicholson, I've always voted against you Scottish nationalists. I've always opposed independence. This is my posh voice I'm putting on here. Um, and she said, but this time I'm going to vote for you tomorrow in order to stop that ghastly man. I think Brexit um, has made a lot of people in Scotland who wanted to be Scottish, British and European discovered that that choice, that that triple identity has been removed from them. So they now have to make a choice whether they want to be uh, Scottish independent, like Denmark and the European Union, or whether they want to be part of Boris Johnson's Brexit Britain or Liz Truss's Brexit Britain or any of their Brexit Britain. And I think mainstream Scotland, the people who previously weren't in favour of independence, now have to consider that. And they are considering it. And especially the older voters are having to work out what the best future is for their children and grandchildren. And I can tell you this, going around the doors, a lot of them have changed their minds because of Brexit. And, well, we can see that in the polling. If you look at the breakdown of polling, you know, it's quite interesting because the only group that now supports continued membership of the United Kingdom is the over 65s. And by the time you get down to the under 35s, I think it's something like 70% in favour of independence. And it's not because of nationalism or flag waving. It's because they want to see the kind of independent progressive country that I believe Scotland could become and that the evidence is that Scotland would become because of the kind of things we've done with the limited power we've had in the Scottish Parliament. I know that this week Nicola Sturgeon released the first of a series of white papers relating to the call for a new referendum. This was about the democratic deficit. So just describe that to me, John, because that does fall within our remit of the week in politics, obviously very germane to your party as well. What is the democratic deficit as the SNP perceives it? Well, at the last election, uh, the last uh, Holyrood Scottish election, it was in our manifesto that if we won, which we did, I think the 11th election in a row that the SNP has won, if we won, we would then legislate to have a referendum on Scottish independence because a huge amount has changed since the last one. You know, if you were 15 in the last uh, referendum, uh, you'd now be in your mid-20s and you certainly have a, a right to vote and people have the right to change their minds in a democracy. Um, and what we said at the last election was we will hold a referendum on independence. The SNP won. Uh, the Greens ran on the same manifesto commitment. Holyrood now has a majority for that. And I think that if you run on a manifesto commitment, not only should you implement that, but I think you're honour bound to implement it. So we promised people we'd hold a referendum and we should hold a referendum. Now, at the moment, Boris Johnson is saying no, which is an extraordinary position because this is meant to be, we were told this at the time of the last referendum, a union of equals, that it's a voluntary union, that we can be part of the UK if we want to be, and if we don't want to be part of the UK, we have the right to leave. And yet he's saying we cannot put that to people uh, to give them that choice. Can you imagine if the Brexiteers had had to go to Brussels to ask for permission to hold a Brexit referendum? Can you imagine the rage that they would have been? And yet, shamelessly, 
the Brexiteers now in charge in Downing Street and in the Cabinet are saying that Scotland and the SNP cannot exercise its manifesto commitment. The, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives on the day of the last elections said very clearly, if you go out today and vote in Scotland and elect the SNP, be in no doubt you're voting for a second independence referendum. What well, he was right. People went out, they voted for it, they made it very clear that they wanted it. And while I absolutely accept the right of people to campaign against independence, I have no problem with that. What they don't have the right to do is to tell us that we can't have a choice. They mm-hmm. don't uh, have the John, right of to course, do that. People will point out that there was a referendum in 2014 and the people of Scotland rejected independence in that vote. I guess you would argue that Brexit in particular has changed the ground rules, if we were to have another independent referendum, could we say, well, that's it then for a generation, which I think was the quote last time, or do you just keep on trying and trying to have a referendum until you get the result that you want? Well, in a democracy, people, if they lose, are entitled to continue to argue their case. You know, this this in theory, it's not a dictatorship. And if, if you if you don't prevail... You continue to argue your case. I mean, I'm a gay man. Uh, Think of the number of times we introduced legislation in the House of Commons for an equal age of consent, to repeal Clause 28, to allow gays to serve in the military. We lost and we lost and we lost again, but we didn't give up. We carried on coming back and eventually we prevailed and we prevailed by changing public opinion. It's a perfectly honourable thing for us to do. Now, you mentioned this line about once in a generation. That was a throwaway line that I think a couple of um, of the leaders, um, Nicola and Alex Salmond, made at a, a different uh, hustings. It was not in the Edinburgh Agreement between the uh, Holyrood and Westminster governments. It didn't form part of that agreement. It, it was nothing except a line used rhetorically. And if I remember correctly, uh, both... Uh, Boris Johnson and his uh, Labour opponent at the last election both said it was a once in a generation election. That did not, as far as I know, mean that we were never going to have a general election again. So, I mean, we've got to be serious about these things. You mentioned the Conservatives and their form of Brexit. And, you know, the people of Scotland, in your view, were not happy with Boris Johnson's Brexit, with Liz Truss's Brexit. What about Keir Starmer's Brexit? Because, of course, the Labour leader has categorically ruled out rejoining the EU, ruled out freedom of movement, for example, which you've referenced, which is a cornerstone of the European Union. I think many people would see that as a tactic to head off the right-wing newspapers who would flay any Labour leader, particularly in England, who advocated a return to the European Union. So it might be seen as tactically astute, but in Scotland, I'm guessing that plays into your hands. I'm deeply disappointed in Keir Starmer. I've known Keir Starmer for a very long time. And again, he's another contemporary and I've I've known him uh, as long as I've known of Boris Johnson. 
And I've always liked Keir Stormer. I always thought he was a principled person. You know, when he was a, a young man and a young lawyer, he used to spend his spare time off in the West Indies uh, trying to defend people who were on death row. And when he when he stopped being a senior uh, law officer, he didn't go off into private practice when he was director of uh, public prosecutions. He came into the House of Commons uh, where he was never going to make the kind of money that he was going to make in 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 private practice. And indeed, when he was being smeared by Nadine Doris and others over his um, drink, uh, in fact, she tweeted a picture of him with Frank Dobson. Um, and Frank Dobson had been dead for many years uh, at the time of his, of his campaigning drink. I defended Keir Starmer. So I know what Keir Starmer thinks about Brexit. He was completely and utterly against Brexit. And to see Keir Starmer now come out and double down and for for him to call his party now a Brexit party, to defend an end to free movement, which he knows is completely disastrous, and to promise that the Labour Party will never again uh, campaign to join the European Union and to have free, uh, freedom of movement, so absolutely essential for young people who want to live freely, to travel, to work, to live, to love throughout the European Union, I think is desperately sad. And it also followed another dreadful comment for from him, because I know he understands the arguments about Scottish independence. And he's campaigned uh, as a well, centre-left, maybe moving to the right, uh, centre-right politician. He's campaigned over many, many years for the rights of people to self-determine all around the world and to have the governments that they want and to have national independence. For him to come out now and to say that he will not allow as if he's some kind of governor general, he will not allow the Scots to have a vote on independence, regardless of how they vote at general elections. I'm very sad to see what he's becoming, and I'm terribly sad to see him sell out in this appalling way because he's terrified of the right-wing tabloids. It's, it's beneath him, is all I would say. Mm. If Keir Starmer wants to come on and defend himself, by the way, I'd love to have him one week. Me too. On the week in politics here on Byline Radio, or if he's listening in now, or any of his friends are. Come on, Keir, join in. It'd be great to have you on. Um, in all seriousness, John, is there any one of the Tory leadership contenders that you fear that might say things in Scotland that would play with potential SNP voters? to your detriment? No, not really. Um, I think clearly some of them are more articulate than others. I think, I mean, Liz Truss is a, is a caricature, isn't she? She really, uh, she keeps making enormous faux pas. You know, she didn't know where the difference between the Baltic and the Black Sea. Um, she calls the Irish Prime Minister the T-Sock. Uh, I mean, she she's seems quite a, a, a ludicrous um, character to, to to aspire to this high office in 10 Downing Street. So I, I think she I, I think she would be a clumsy opponent. Um, I, I think Tom Tuchenhut is by far the most articulate. I think he is very wisely warned of the threat that Vladimir Putin uh, poses. He's done that over a long period of time. He is an honourable record. He talks more sensibly than any of the rest of them about Scotland. Uh, you know, he's a great champion of the rights to self-determination 
for for small countries, and has said so frequently. Um, you know, I was very disappointed in the debate this afternoon because he was talking about how he didn't want to see socialist homes built. And I had to think, what does he mean by socialist homes? And it turns out he meant public housing <laughs> for 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 young for young families trying to to get a start who can't afford to buy a private house uh, and might want uh, for for the local councils or other groups to start building public housing, which of course we desperately need. And he said, they were, they, these are socialist homes. I thought, really, honestly, Tom, you don't have to say really stupid things. But then I thought, of course you do, because you're appealing to Tory party members. So I was, it was a bit sad to see him stoop like that. But of all the candidates, I think he's, he's probably the most sensible and, and mainstream one, which of course is why he'll be eliminated next. Okay. Now, John, I did invite people a little earlier on to pose questions to you, and quite a few of them did on Twitter, for which many thanks, by the way. Thank you to everybody who joined in. So I'll just run some of these by you, John. This is from Mr. C. He says, why have SNP, MPs, MSPs and their leader started to block people who want to reasonably engage with them on the COVID catastrophe, which they've walked away from and abandoned the most vulnerable to? Um, well, that's a bizarre thing to say, Mr. Mr. C. Nobody walked away from the COVID catastrophe. Uh, the, the, the First Minister, every single day, appeared before a press conference. Uh, in sharp contrast to, to Boris Johnson, she was there every single day, uh, as far as I recall, seven days a week, answering questions from journalists and getting out public health service announcements. She was highly visible and even her political opponents praised her approach to it. And I know when I go around the doors, even people who say that they're not going to vote SNP say they admire the First Minister's work ethic and they admired her approach during the pandemic. So I don't agree with that at all. I think that's an odd characterization. As to blocking, can I just say about, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Blo- about blocking? Mm, mm. Um, I, block pe- I block people on Twitter. Mm. Um, I block people if they're rude, if they're offensive, if they're obsessive. But I don't block people just because they disagree with me courteously. And, you know, I think I've got about 40,000 followers, maybe a wee bit more now. And they, they cover a broad cross-section of opinion. And all you have to do is have a wee look down and you'll see that I regularly answer people. And I promised when I was elected that I'd be the most accessible MP my constituency had ever had. And so I I do something on a regular basis, which is I tell people what I'm doing pretty much every day so that people can see what my work is like as an MP and follow the debates that I speak in when I'm in the constituency, when I'm having surgeries. And I have surgeries uh, available twice a week and people can phone up and book and they can do them over the over Zoom. They can do them on the phone. I'm very accessible. Um, you're not under an obligation to answer every single tweet you ever get, get regardless of how rude people are being. <laughs> no, indeed. Well, uh, I wait more uh, information from Mr. C uh, about that. There was a question mark, wasn't there, about the transparency of the SNP over public spending? I know that Audit Scotland, which monitors public spending in Scotland, said that the Scottish government should improve the transparency of public finances over the, the many billions of pounds it was spending on COVID. Yeah, well, I, I'm very much in favour 
of uh, transparency. I'm a journalist by profession. I was a Newsnight reporter. Um, I, I did documentaries for, for Panorama and other, um, uh, other documentary strands. So I'm in favour of politicians being open and I'm in favour of transparency. Well, yeah, it's, in fact, it's, it's one of the reasons... Isn't whether your party leader is. Well, I think she. I think she is, but if people can cite specific examples where she isn't, where she she isn't. Well, I've just quoted uh, one from Audit Scotland, which called for greater transparency. No, and I, I, I hear, I, I heard what you said, and <laughs> I, I think, I think she took that on board from memory. I can't quite remember what she said about that, but I think from memory, she said she accepted that and and would 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 aim to address the issues that they that she raised. One of the reasons I'm making. Uh, defence of Channel 4, such a big issue at the moment. Of course, I'm front bench uh, DCMS spokesperson at Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And I sit on the select committee and Channel 4 is is under threat from privatisation. And one of the reasons I feel so strongly about that is because it's the only programme at the moment which subjects politicians to a a full-length interview because politicians can be really sneaky. And I know that. I remember when I used to present BBC Breakfast, they would quite often come on at 10 to 8. They'd turn up a wee bit late. Uh, it meant that you'd have to give them a clear run with her first, uh, with her first uh, answer, and then second answer. You could maybe interrupt a wee bit, and then you had to go to sport and weather. So they were never—you could never pin them down over an extended period. But Channel Four News can do that, and that's why Boris Johnson will never go on to it. And if it's privatised, if Channel 4 gets privatised, they will get rid of the full-length Channel 4 news. And it means less scrutiny and less openness. And I think that would be a tragedy. In that, John, is there an implicit criticism of your former employers at the BBC and ITV? I have been critical about my former employers at the BBC. I should point out I've only ever been freelance so I've never been an employee of either either the BBC or, or of ITV sure but, but, you've, but worked, I, you've worked for both of course yeah. I've worked I've, I've worked for both yes I started out in youth programs and moved into news and current affairs at the BBC then I worked in um in documentaries and in news presentation also on ITV LBC and uh, I was a very unlikely talk radio uh, host until relatively recently. So I've done a lot of presenting and reporting over the years. I've been very critical about the BBC. I thought that the BBC didn't cover themselves in glory at the last independence referendum. And I championed a separate Scottish BBC Six o'clock news, a full length programme. I, I didn't win that one. But what I did get was for the BBC to set up the Scottish Nine, which is an hour long programme. Uh, at the time, the Scottish Tories said, oh, we can't have a longer news programme because it will uh, it, it will involve lots of SNP propaganda. It, even by their standards, it was particularly vacuous, implying that uh, all the employees of uh, the BBC were SNP supporters, something I think most SNP supporters would find hard to imagine. But in the end, we got the hour-long programme, and it's a great programme. It's on the BBC Scotland channel. Uh, the presenters are tenacious, and SNP politicians are subjected to lengthy scrutiny on it, which I think is a great thing. And I want to see that for voters throughout these islands. And at the moment, it's only uh, it's only Channel Four that does that, and sometimes Newsnight. But Newsnight is a bit hit and miss. 
Steve Callaghan says, did Scotland lose soft power in the judicial changes that led to the creation of the Supreme Court? He's thinking of the current situation plus the previous continuity bill where the Supreme Court delayed hearing allowed the UK government time to retrospectively change acts. I think that's an excellent question. I, I think um, we've seen Westminster, ever since the formation of the Scottish Parliament, attempt to eat away at the Scottish Parliament's powers. Uh, at the time of Brexit, which I fiercely opposed, as did uh, the, the, the SNP and, and indeed the vast majority of Scottish politicians across the political spectrum, we were promised that one side effect of it would be to see a return of powers from Brussels uh, to Holyrood. But in fact, uh, that wasn't what happened at all. And Westminster enhanced it power, its powers, grabbing powers from Brussels, but not transferring them to, to Holyrood or indeed to Cardiff. Um, so I think it's it's been it's it's been a retrograde step. I mean, of course, in the old days, you used to have to appeal to the House of Lords, which was hardly a, a progressive or a good place uh, for, for Scottish law to be decided in the days before we didn't even have a Scottish Parliament. Uh, the Supreme Court, I think, hasn't really been going long enough for us necessarily to know what long-term effect it will have in its judicial decisions with regard to Scotland. I think we'll probably need more case law to determine that. But it's going to have a very important role coming up soon because if the next Conservative leader again refuses to honour the, the mandate given to the SNP and Greens and refuses to respect the Holyrood Scottish Parliament legislating for a referendum, then the First Minister has said that will go to the Supreme Court to determine. Is there the possibility of Scotland doing a Catalonia if, you're, if you receive support at the ballot box at the next election and having, as it were, an unsanctioned referendum? The situation of Scotland and Catalonia is very different. Scottish unionist politicians, some of them, have tried to use this over the years. But the situation is very different for a whole variety of different reasons. Uh, I mean, first of all, the Spanish government has always said, well, certainly recently has said, that it doesn't see any parallels between Scotland and, and uh, uh, Catalonia because it doesn't recognise Catalonia's right to secede because it says in the Spanish constitution that Spain is indivisible because it ultimately will never recognise any referendum ever. And, and we know that most Westminster politicians, at least in theory, say that this is a voluntary union and Scotland has the right to secede. In fact, Michael Gove was asked this question point blank by Andrew Marr on his programme before he left the BBC. He said, does Scotland have the right to withdraw from the United Kingdom? And Michael Gove said, yes, of course it does. So the, the parallels uh, simply aren't there. Of course, Scotland has a history of being a separate country, which joined the United Kingdom um, uh, supporters of the Union, would argue, willingly. Um, historians would mostly say unwillingly, at least uh, as far as the, the average person in the street was concerned. The, the folk who voted for it uh, were, to a large extent, bribed and were the aristocrats who then formed the majority of uh, representatives in the Scottish Parliament in 1707. So is that a no then, that, that Scotland wouldn't propose a, a kind of a referendum without the approval either of the Supreme Court or the Westminster Parliament? 
Well, what the, the First Minister has, has laid out the route as she sees it. And it will be, first of all, that she d- talks to Boris Johnson's successor when she or he is elected in September, says, let's do what we did in 2014. Let's have a grown-up discussion. Uh, let, let's agree on a referendum, the wording of the referendum question and a date. And then you argue your case, I'll argue mine, and let's put it to the people. But if... on if. we find that the the new leader says no to that. And I certainly hope that won't happen. And I don't believe it's necessarily the case that it will happen, because I think to keep saying no, in fact, strengthens the case for those of us who believe in Scottish independence. I don't think it helps the unionists for that to happen. But if somebody, the new leader says no, then we go to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court rules um, against us, then we would put it to the people at the next general election. We would make the issue an independence election and let the people decide then. Okay, and then then see what happens from that, what flows from that, I guess. Uh, Now, this week there was a a lot of fun at the status of Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, who was uh, who ordered two MPs out of the chamber, but he looked like somebody described him as being like a supply teacher, (laughs) a group group of year nine kids. You know, he really had shut up, shut up. And then his voice sounded as if it was breaking. He sounded like a teenager because he kept. um, kept squeaking in a high register, didn't, didn't he? Um, Indeed. Now, what people may not have realised, the background to that were calls from Kenny McCaskill and Neil Hanvey, who are two MPs of another Scottish nationalist party called ALBA, who were demanding uh, a referendum, calling on Boris Johnson to grant a referendum. That was the cause of Lindsay Hoyle's anger, because they wouldn't stop shouting and demanding it, and they were the two MPs who were kicked out of the chamber. So I'm just giving that little bit of background, A, partly because it's fun, but B, to explain Catherine Hitching's tweet. She says, why did the SNP MPs not support the Scottish Albert MPs when they were forced out of the chamber by the Speaker for, in Catherine's words, speaking up for Scotland? Well, first of all, I don't think uh, the SNP MPs knew what Kenny and Neil were doing. One of the things you've got to do if you're doing a protest, um, and there are different opinions about how effective these things are. I don't think they're effective myself personally. But if you're going to do it, you've got to make sure you're near a microphone. And you've also got to make sure you're near a camera. Now, neither of them has any history, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, of broadcasting. So they seem to have positioned themselves away from microphones and away from cameras. So nobody had a clue what they were doing or what they were shouting about. Um, I certainly didn't. Uh, I was asked about it on Twitter. I answered at the time. Um, they were then, they, you know, they, they then chucked out, and they seemed to have one supporter outside the, the the House of Commons who clapped them wildly, and they explained to a um, to a journalist what they'd done and 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 why, and it it caused a bit of a Twitter storm, and then it completely disappeared. I don't particularly see the point of it. Um, if you're going to do one of these protests, you've got to make sure it's theatrical and dramatic. Do you remember Michael Heseltine when he swung the mace and it was in the front page of all the papers the next day and he did it with great theatrical flourish and everybody knew exactly what it was that he was doing and 
and why Dennis Skinner did it over many years. It was it was it was always explained what it was that he was about, and um, Ian and the the leader of the SNP and the SNP group did it over Brexit at one point and walked out again. Everybody knew what it was about. You got to plan it. You got to make sure you're in front of a microphone so that people can hear what you're saying and that you're near a camera so people know what you're doing. Otherwise, it just falls horribly flat and just looks a little bit sad. So I didn't know what they were doing at the time. They didn't tell us in advance. Um, we couldn't hear them. We couldn't really see them. Um, and it all kind of kind of fizzled out. One final question for you, John. You've been very generous with your time, and I'm extremely grateful to you for that. Thank you. This is from Cathy. She says, does John believe that the Tory party is the greatest threat to Britain and democracy itself? Well, I don't know if, if Cathy means Britain or the United Kingdom. It is I certainly the yeah, I guess it certainly means it's certainly the, the greatest threat to the United Kingdom because these are folk who call themselves unionists. To be honest, I don't think they could they could, they could find Derry on on a map. Lots of them, but it, it, clearly, what they've done with Brexit, I I think, will have long term consequences. And I I think when the history of the United Kingdom is written and the end of the United Kingdom, I think it will be traced back to the date of Brexit, because there has been a battle inside the Conservative Party between English nationalists and unionists. And the English nationalists have won because a lot of the wiser heads in the Conservative Party at the time of Brexit said, if we if we go ahead with Brexit, it will lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. And they were right. And I think that's what will happen. And I think the push towards it, and of course, there's been a momentum towards Scottish independence that predates uh, at Brexit, 45% in the 2014 referendum, then that huge change in 2015 when so, so many of us were elected to go down to Westminster. But I think that the final push was probably Brexit, because what it showed was that Westminster doesn't care about Scotland and we could be dragged out of the European Union against our will if they'd really wanted to save the United Kingdom, what they of course should have done was to say that uh, we could only leave the European Union with the agreement of all the parliaments of the United Kingdom, that we would all have to agree to it. But of course, they didn't say that. And it had a huge effect on Scotland and Northern Ireland. And I think the long term consequence will be Scottish independence and a united Ireland. And I think that's what the that's what the historians will will look back and um, and declare. And so I think uh, I think to answer Cathy's question, I, I think the uh, the end of the United Kingdom has been caused by the Conservative Party. And uh, well, it depends on your point of view whether or not you think it's a it's a good thing. I think Scottish independence is a good thing, and I think a United Ireland will will prove to be an enormous success. John, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you, uh, John Nicholson. Thank you. SNP MP, and you're welcome back at a future date, of course, to the week in politics. Great just to have these conversations, uh, in a sense, apropos nothing, but in a sense, apropos the week in politics, of course, but more generally as well about politics without some of the the heat and the anger that's sometimes associated with those conversations. So thank you uh, very much indeed. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been byline radio or if you're listening on catch up the byline times podcast and it's funded by subscriptions to the byline times our wonderful monthly newspaper do check it out get a subscription find out how 
at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget, every Friday night at 7 p.m., Byline TV on YouTube as well. It is a must-watch. And don't forget to check out the Bylines app on your smartphone, opening up the world of our regional bylines as well, including, I think, John, I think we've now got our Byline Scotland finally going. So uh, a bit bit slow on that, but it's there, I think. So uh, thank you very much indeed, and uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you all next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye.